The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Today we make a transition, a transition out of the Old Testament prophets into the Old Testament writings. And the book of Ruth is the book that, for most, is difficult to figure out its placement. I have Jesus' Bible order up on the screen. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all is well. Joshua, Judges, Ruth isn't there. It just goes from Joshua to Judges, very dark, uh, broken book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in the land. And then it moves directly into the darkness of First Samuel. Then we go from Samuel to Kings, and then the narrative pauses. So we've been on a story from Genesis to Kings, and then the narrative just breaks. So here's the narrative. It stops and then it's going to pick up again in the book of Daniel. So in Kings, we, we end off in exile. Israel is in Babylon. And then the story will pick up again in the book of Daniel with Israel in Babylon and carry us all the way to the time of the New Testament. But here we are in the writings. Here's the shift. It's been the law, um, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Old Covenant was established. The Old Covenant has been enforced in the prophets. We found out what happened in the history of Israel. Very dark, sad history of rebellion and brokenness and ultimately separation from God. And then we found out why did it happen. The prophets go in to detail that God wasn't the one running away. Israel was the one running away. And we end in the book of the Twelve with the book of Malachi the twelfth of the minor prophets, declaring that here we are, Israel, uh, even after initial restoration, Israel hasn't changed. Their hearts are still far from God. So it's into this world of darkness where there's always been glimmers of hope, but principally it's focused on sin. And then all of a sudden the shift comes in the writings and the focus is no longer on sin, it's on hope. Kingdom hope. If you're working through Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, you get this ever-increasing progression of darkness, darkness, darkness. Ruth doesn't fit in there because Ruth is a story of unbelievable hope. And in Jesus' Bible, it happens to come right before the Psalms. You'll remember that the former writings, they're part of the commentary. So we've got commentary, commentary. These are non-story books. Ruth is the only one of this group that's actually a story. But it's not part, it's not placed in the story section. 
It's not placed in the story section of the Bible. Instead, it shows up right after Malachi, right at the front end of Psalms. It introduces us to this whole unit, and then everything moves from biggest book to a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller. It's largest to smallest. That's how the former writings are set up. It's how the latter prophets are set up. The biggest books come first, and then you move down. So the fact that um, all of these are in poetry... And Ruth is not. That sets Ruth apart. And then the fact that Ruth is so small, and it fronts everything. Psalms is the biggest book. And before that, though, Ruth is sitting. And so Ruth stands as a a prelude to the writings. We read Ruth. We're caught up right away in a story of Desperate, dark times. In the days that the judges ruled. And all of a sudden, our minds go back to darkness. And that's exactly where Israel is. They are living at the end of Kings and at the end of the book of Twelve in a period of intense darkness. They've been separated from God. Separated from the promised land. That's exactly where Ruth is going to be found. They're going to be in exile in Moab. David's ancestors, this is a story about David's ancestors who were separated from God and brought back to the promised land and after arriving in the promised land get redeemed by a kinsman redeemer from Bethlehem. And now David's descendants are wondering, who are now sitting in exile... After the book of Kings, sitting in exile. After the book of the Twelve, sitting separated from God, without full redemption. All of a sudden, Ruth comes in and tells their story. What's on their minds? Is God still for us? Are the promises to David still sure? And God uses a story about His redemption of David's ancestors to give hope to David's descendants that He hasn't forgotten them. That's the purpose of Ruth. This is ultimately not a story about Ruth. Not a story about Naomi. They are secondary characters to Boaz. And Boaz himself, what Boaz is for Ruth, David will be for Israel. But already this group, David, the story of the, of the original David showed up in Samuel. And we know that his story didn't end super well. And therefore, the eyes of the reader have been pushed beyond the original David to one greater than David, the son of David, whose throne would never end. And so we read Ruth now in light of its placement. Everyone knows David's already dead. So what does a book about David's, God's deliverance of David's ancestors have to do with us? And the final word of this book, David, it's the last word in Ruth chapter 4. David, what it does is it awakens the people's hearts to hope in the promises that were given to David, to hope in the new David. This is a book about the kingdom of God, about God's purposes through Israel for the benefit of the world. And that's what we're going to look at today. So to that end, let's pray. Heavenly Father, This is such an encouraging, hopeful book, and I pray that you would move us through it today. I pray that you would be our help. Give us clarity. Give us eyes to see. Help me be a good instructor today. May I be able to communicate in a way that 
Your Spirit works through it and ministers to hearts. You are the great Redeemer. You are the one who have, has come in the person of your Son and brought rest to our weary souls. May we leave today encouraged in a God who is faithful, trustworthy, 100%, who makes promises and does not stop until those promises are fulfilled. You have captured us. You've brought us to yourself. You've incorporated us into your work, your new covenant work. David has risen, and we worship him. Guide us today as we look at your book of Ruth. Amen. Okay, so up on the screen is a snapshot, Ruth at a glance. We've got crisis, hope, challenge, rescue, and then a genealogy. So this is the basic story. There's a crisis. Naomi is emptied. Emptied of all of her family and all the men in her life. And with that, you have, to, you have to remember, this is not a world where the woman can go out and get a job. Not a world where the woman can rise up, go to school, and then become a nurse or a teacher. In the loss of her husband, in the loss of her sons, she has lost all her future inheritance. The land will not be left to her um, she has no descendants to pass on. There's no, no land. There's no offspring. And how weighty this is. She dies with both of her sons gone. Without the opportunity to pass on a passion for the supremacy of God through the bearing of children, which links her with Eve, with the entire mission of humanity to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it as God-dependent Men and women hoping in the promised offspring. Her family's opportunity to carry on a hunger for God, to display God from generation to generation. It's being cut off right now. No opportunity. And she feels empty. Well, what happens? She arrives back in Bethlehem. And with her is this daughter-in-law named Ruth who has said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. She arrives back and, and hope rises because Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz who happens to be a relative. And Israel has a special provision set up in the law for widows whose husbands die and they don't have children yet. In light of Israel's purpose to have a land that would be ever-expanding to fill the earth with the glory of God, and to fill that land with a population through whom the world would be blessed. It was called leveret marriage. Lever in Latin, is a brother-in-law. The law of the brother-in-law. And that shapes the background to the story of Ruth, also the story of Judah and Tamar, back in Genesis 38. We'll look at that, but it shapes the background that if a, if, a brother would, if a husband would die and he's got a single brother, that single brother has the responsibility to marry his brother's widow in order that her name, really her husband's name, would not be cut off from the earth. And now this single man has taken on the responsibility of this woman. 
It's built right into Israel's law. And if there's not an immediate brother, then it moves on to the nearest relative. And that's why hope is raised when Ruth finds favor in a relative named Boaz. Then a roadblock happens. The roadblock is that Boaz is not the closest relative. And so tension rises in the story, and you and I are reading along, wondering what's God going to do. But there's things that are much bigger than Ruth and Boaz at stake. What's at stake for the reader is the kingdom of God and the future of his people. Does he care for them? Will he preserve them? Will he redeem them out of exile? And the story of Ruth becomes a little parable of what God has promised to do for his his people. Well, the roadblock is overcome because as much as the closest redeemer would want the land, he can't, for whatever reason, take a wife. And it says what the reason is in the book. He fears it's too much of a risk for him because what happens is his firstborn no longer will inherit his his inheritance. He's going to have to trust God to bring two boys, not just one. Because the firstborn in a leveret marriage relationship, the firstborn of this new marriage, when a brother-in-law marries his dead brother's wife, or a relative marries his dead relative's wife, the firstborn in this marriage will inherit all the wife's stuff and ultimately the, that other husband's stuff if, the, if he doesn't have a second son. And so he fears that he's going to lose all of his inheritance, so he says, I'm not going to marry Ruth. And because of that, this wave of grace pours into Ruth and Naomi's life with divine rescue. And what's at stake, though, is much bigger than one man and one woman coming from the house of bread. Beit, house, lechem, bread. House of bread, that's where Boaz is from. It's where Jesse who is the son of Obed. So it goes, Rahab the harlot is the mother of Boaz. Boaz is the mother, is the father of Boaz marries Ruth. They have Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, all coming from Bethlehem. And David is the hope, the promises given to David, that a, a child from his line will be on the throne forever. That's where this book is going. And then it ends with the genealogy of David, a ten-member genealogy of David in linear fashion. All we get is one son. He gave birth to this son, to this son, to this son. There was lots of other children, but all they focus on is the one, the one, the one, the one, the one. Ten generations from Obed to... Sorry, from Perez all the way to David. And we'll touch on Perez. Perez is the son of Judah and Tamar. And Judah is the one in Genesis 49 who were told, the throne will not depart from you. Through you, Judah, will the Messiah, the great deliverer, who will overcome the serpent of Genesis 3.15, through you, the deliverer will rise. So there's bigger things that are happening Naomi's emptiness is a picture of Israel's emptiness in exile. And I get this just reading Ruth in light of its context. This is what I think the message of Ruth is about. 
a redeemer identified as a provider and a protector. This is the rise of a redeemer from Bethlehem. What was true of David's ancestors will be true of David's descendants. That's the message of the book. And then Ruth and, Mary, Ruth and Boaz get married. Naomi moves from empty to being filled. And Israel will be filled. And the genealogy climaxes thrusting focus on the hope of a new David and the kingdom of God. So, let's look at the book. Judges chapter, sorry, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. All of a sudden, we've got lots of problems. The echo of the time of the judges, this is what we remember. The people of Israel were doing what was right, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The period of the judges was a period of deep darkness, a period of unbelievable rebellion, a time without a king. Now, for the readers, that's exactly where they're at. They're either in exile or they've returned to the land, but there's no king of David on the throne. There's, therefore, continuity, a similarity between the period of the judges without a king and therefore chaos, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, and the period of the exiles without a king. Is there hope? Is there any help? And that's the period. So there's this, there's this bridge that's being built in a similar context. Also, famine. The very presence of famine in Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means the house of bread, there's a famine in Bethlehem. That's a signal to us that there's a problem. And if we go back to the judges, we'll remember there were six cycles of judges. So Israel would rebel on God. He would oppress them. They would cry out. He would send a judge and they would be delivered. And then they would, after the judge would die, do even worse than they had before. And then the cycle kept going. Well, we're in one of those cycles of God's oppressing them because there's famine in the land. This is an image of curse. The hand of the Lord was against them, it says in Judges chapter 2. He was against them for harm. God was working harm against Israel. And then notice it wasn't random. It was just as He had warned them. When had He warned them that He would do harm? In the curses of the covenant. We read the history of the covenant in light of the covenant that's established in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus. And in Leviticus, this is what we read. If you will not heed my voice, then this is what I'll do. I'll break the supply of bread upon you. So what's going to happen when no bread, there's there's not a harvest? Ten women will be gathered around one stove making their bread. Point being, there's not enough for everyone. And the result is starvation and hunger. This is part of God's curse. And when you experience such things in your life, it's supposed to push you back. When you experience Genesis 3, you're supposed to scream, God, get me back into Genesis 2 world. Get me back into alignment with you, where I'm dependent on you, where I'm enjoying your blessing, where there's productivity and fruitfulness. Genesis 3 world is the world of curse. It's the world due to sin. So there's signals right off the bat 
that we're in, an, in a broken time. Then we read in verse 2, Okay, so there was this famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Machlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, if we're reading this in light of what's already come before, then Bethlehem and Judah is right where David was from. Jesse in 1 Samuel 16, this is where Samuel went to find David, was in Bethlehem. And then it's this king that is raised up above all. But we don't even have to go all the way back to there. If we just read Ruth in light of what directly precedes, what do we have? Micah 5.2. And this is where we read this word, Ephrathah. And so I think that the mention of it in Ruth would have already made the readers go back in their thinking. When the wise men show up in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2, and they're saying, we're looking for the king, Herod goes to the religious leaders and says, where was these supposed to be born? And this is the text they quote. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is the hope of the prophets, that one day God would raise up His Messiah, His Deliverer. And now what we read is that this key family from Bethlehem is actually leaving Bethlehem. This doesn't seem to be good news, that the very location where the Redeemer is to come, there's focused attention on someone actually leaving there. Why is God letting a main character leave Bethlehem? We've got to raise our attention and wonder what's up. It's this king who would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their prince. So right away, I have my attenta, my, my antennae up. I'm, I'm sensing... Um, as a reader of this text, I'm sensing period of darkness back in the Judges, very comparable to where I was left off at the end of the prophets. And then the hope of the Messiah from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And now it's mentioned here. I move ahead. Naomi's emptiness. What is the nature of it? Verse 5. So the husband that she had, and the two sons that took Moabite wives. Verse 5, Machlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Empty. And what she feels is absolute hopelessness about her future. She's a widow, and she tells her daughters-in-law, just go back, you're still young. Go back to your own families and find new husbands. Let's see how this works out. Verse 11. Naomi turned to Orpha and Ruth. My daughters, she said, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Hear that, that law that I mentioned, leveret marriage? 
Here it is right here. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the, there it is, the husband's brother, the law of the brother-in-law, leveret marriage. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." So she's saying, I have no other sons, and even if I was to get married right now, are you going to wait as a grown woman? You're in your 20s. Are you going to wait another 20 years? No, this doesn't make any sense. Go. What's best for your future is for you to go and marry some Moabite men. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go away, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons this night. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. She has a massive view of God's sovereignty. She does not have a small view of God. This is not happening by chance. She knows God's in charge, even of the death of her husbands. But she counts it deep bitterness. But what does Ruth say? Orpha heads back. Ruth says, no. No, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Later, Boaz is actually going to say, Ruth, I've seen what you've done and how you have come to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. That's what she's declaring here. I'm going to follow your God. I'm going to... Be there for you. I'm not going to let my mother-in-law go without help, without support. It's no wonder that Boaz will later call her a worthy woman. Or as the book of Proverbs translates, most English translations render it, Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character. A worthy woman. Those are the two places in all the Bible where we see that phrase. Proverbs 31 and Ruth chapter 2. A worthy woman. That's who she is. She's being exalted. And then when we get to the book of Proverbs, believe me, you hear Proverbs 31, and it's going to take you back and say, yes, I want to be like Ruth was. I will follow your God. I will go where you go. So what does Naomi say? 20 and 21. So, not what does Naomi say. Naomi lets Ruth come. They arrive back in Bethlehem because they've heard that God has turned the uh, system. He's allowing the bread to grow once again. The famine has ceased, which would mean by nature that there's, according to the book of Judges, that they have repented and they're in a season of plenty. But this is still Naomi's feeling. Even though she has a daughter-in-law who served her so well, she feels empty. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. 
All the women are looking at her. She left. Look, look at how it's worded. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. But the Lord emptied her, ultimately, this book says, in order to make, to fill her up in a way that would have never been possible before. To fill her up with, ultimately, in her loins, the Messiah. That all the world, you and I, could be sitting here today worshiping our God. She felt empty, and God was just stretching her out to make her bigger and more ready for all that He had for her. But in her perspective, this this unit, chapter 1, ends with her feeling like God's left her, He's resigned her to a life of death and brokenness. But then all of a sudden, things change. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. Now that's exactly the same statement that's going to be said of Ruth. She's the worthy woman. Well, he's a worthy man. One who is known at the city gate. One who is elevated above all in his region. A relative of Naomi's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this is just setting us up. Boaz's identity is absolutely the antithesis of what we see men depicted as in the book of Judges. He is not the norm. In Judges, when we see women, men are abusing them from start to finish. Boaz, the text is like going out of its way to say exactly the opposite. Here's Boaz's character. Look at verse 4. Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. He comes up to his hired servants who are working his own land, and his response is, you're going too slow. I want more in the wheelbarrow. No, he just says, the Lord be with you. And they say, may God bless you. That's their automatic response to to their overseer. He is a blesser, not an abuser. Number two, he's a provider and a protector. This is what a man is supposed to be. All the way back since Genesis 2.15. God placed Adam in the garden, and He called Adam to serve it and to keep it. That is, to provide for what was in the garden and to guard everything that was in the garden. He's a provider and a protector, the ideal man. Boaz is just that. Look at verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, who's, who's uh, hopped into his field and is just following the women who are picking up the sheaves, he says to her, listen to me, my daughter, don't glean in any other field or leave, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, simply go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her a roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles of 
for her and leave it for her to glean. Don't rebuke her. Verse 22, she arrives in the presence of Naomi. Naomi says, oh, it's good, my daughter, that you go with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. We're supposed to recognize the distinction. He's a different kind of man. And as we see this portrait of Boaz, what's going to happen is once we read this the second time, the third time, the fourth time, we realize this is ultimately not about Boaz and Ruth, but about the hope of Israel through the coming David. Boaz is depicting what David will be like. Yes, the past David, imperfectly, but the future hope for David, Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah, who is a blesser rather than an abuser, a provider and a protector, and then one who fills rather than empties. Every time Ruth shows up in Boaz's presence, she comes with nothing and she leaves with a whole bunch. Let's just look at some examples. 2.14. So she sat by the reapers. He passed her her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and then she had some left over. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. She's just benefiting an overflow of the great... um, disposition, this overflowing generous disposition of Boaz. She shows up empty, she leaves full. Same thing happens in 3.17 after she goes and asks him to serve as her redeemer. He won't let her go without filling her up with six measures of barley. Take this back to your mother-in-law. And then she comes, empty womb, no children, and she comes into Boaz at the end of the book, and she leaves full. And Naomi is full. Now with offspring, now with land, now with posterity, and in light of the narrator's perspective, the hope that through her the Messiah would rise. So here's Boaz's motivation. Look at verse 12. Why are you helping me? Why, why, what are you doing this for? And he just says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He sees himself as the agent of God. It's one thing to declare, God loves the orphan. God will care for the poor. He will meet the need of the widow. It's one thing to declare the character of God. It's another thing to recognize that I am supposed to be his hands and feet. Why is he doing this? Because she's come in order to find refuge in Yahweh's wings. She's entered into this circle as one who is a foreigner. As a Moabitess, she's not even allowed to go to the temple. Because of how they treated Israel when they came through the land. And yet God's going to reach down and just ransom her. She said, your God will be my God. And she's entered into the community of faith. She's identified with them. And rather than a people who are saying, I don't want to go by her, she's got a past. 
This man is intruding into her life and embracing her with God-wrought love. He simply says, you've come to find refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Why am I doing this? Because of that. May God bless you. Your heart is right. And that's the heart of our God. And we're seeing it emulated in the life of this, this one man. Where'd you glean today? May the man who took notice of you bless you. So here's to that response. Where did you glean today? This is what Ruth says, and this is what we learn. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, The man's name with whom I worked today was Boaz. And all of a sudden, something happens in the heart of Naomi for the first time in our story. She's awakened to the possibility of hope. Listen to what she says. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She's thinking bigger than just one day's meal. God is intruded. This is a sign of His favor for us. He let you, out of all the fields you could have gone to, to go to one of our relatives. This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And there's that key word that takes us right back into the Pentateuch to understand who this guy is. So Elimelech, it doesn't appear he had any brothers, but he had relatives. And Boaz was part of the clan of Elimelech, who was Naomi's original husband. She sees something positive. Is not Boaz our relative? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. I want you to go there. That's where we're headed now. But enter in the challenge. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, says chapter 3, verse 1. That's what this is about. About a person, about a people who are in exile, who separated from God, without hope, without help, and they need rest. That's what it means to come to God. That's what it means to come to the Redeemer, to find rest for your souls. And here's Naomi saying, should I not work in order to bring you to rest? Isn't that a mission heart? Why am I going out to tell? Why am I not leaving my mouth shut? Why am I pushing you toward the only hope, the only helper, the only salvation that you have that you might find rest? That your life of anxiety and torment and toil could be set aside for a life of peace and hope and help? Don't I need to act this way? Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So here's the moment of request. So go, find him. He's out at the threshing floor. Sit at his feet. And when he wakes up, ask him, will he serve as the Redeemer in accordance with the law of Moses? I am Ruth, your servant, she says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. Now, We already saw this verse. This was in the mouth of Boaz. 
2.12, may the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to find refuge. And now she uses Boaz's language and, and brings it back to him and says, will you not now serve as the agent of God's wings, of God's provision and protection? Will you take me underneath yourself? For a people caught up in exile, feeling separated from God, dark and distant, the answer of this text is, ask the only possible Redeemer for help. Look to Him. Request it. And the one that you're looking to, if you're looking in the right place for your satisfaction, looking in the right place for your future hope, if you are looking in the right place, He will not reject you. And any obstacle will ultimately be overcome. Here it is. Will you serve as the wings of God for your servant? Here's Boaz's response. Verse 10 of chapter 3. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Kindness to whom? Kindness to Naomi. You're serving your mother-in-law here. This is amazing. I'm an old duffer. Big gray beard. And there's these handsome, sleek bobsled racers that you could go after, any of them. And, and he says, and you're coming to me. Amazing kindness. And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is one nearer than I. Thus the challenge, the challenge to the plot that keeps you and I reading. It's not resolved easily. Is God big enough to overcome this obstacle? That's what those in exile are asking. Yes, he's made promises. Yes, he has desire, but is he able Will he intrude into my life and take me out of my brokenness? Will he do it? Can he do it? Is he able to do it? So what happens? Remain tonight and in the morning. If the closer Redeemer will redeem you, then good. Let him do it. You'll be cared for. Naomi will be cared for. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then know this. As Yahweh lives, I swear on oath before the creator of the universe... I will redeem you. Now lie down until morning. Just rest. Be at peace. And then she wakes up and he gives her six measures of barley. Take these back to your mother-in-law just as a token that I care. And now the rescue. So, you can go back and learn about the kinsman redeemer and all the things that they were supposed to do. But the two that relate to this book are the bottom two here. The kinsman redeemer ensured that hereditary property of the clan never passes out of the clan, and the kinsman redeemer helped prevent that the name of the deceased relative from dying out and helped to support the widow of the deceased by performing the duties of the levir. 
If you want clarity on this whole story about you'll forever be called the, sand, the man whose sandal was taken off, you just read the story. It's a little bit weird. You can read about it right here in Deuteronomy 25. It tells you about the process of taking out the sandal and passing it on, and it's an image of shame. If the one who is the closest redeemer will not step up and be the redeemer, it's a shameful act. He's unwilling to trust his God for his future. So that's what we read here. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. I thought I would tell you of it and say, uh, this is about Naomi's dilemma, buy the land in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then do so. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. The man said, oh yeah, I'll take land, that's easy. Then Boaz says, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, Oh, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. That's what Boaz is willing to do. A man with big fields, big flocks, lots of hired workers, he's willing to impair his own inheritance in order to love this girl and care for his relative. So the guy rejects it, and in the process they have the whole sandal thing, and all the community turns and says this, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house. So Boaz gets the girl. He gets the girl, and he loves her. And all the community says, This is noble. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Who are they? Who together built up the house of Israel. Those are Jacob's wives. These are the founders of Israel. Well, what does this mean? If someone from Boaz's wombs is going to... uh, um, If this wife, Ruth, is going to be like Leah and Rachel... Implication? May a new Israel be birthed. Oh yes, Israel has died. They're in exile. But may, this, may from the loins of this woman a new Israel be birthed. But not only that, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Remember Judah was the father, one of the, Jacob's twelve sons, and Tamar was married to his son. He was bad. God killed him. So then they performed the Leverett marriage, and Judah's second son marries Tamar. He's bad and will not produce young through her, and God kills him. And then Judah doesn't want Tamar to have Shelah, his youngest son, because he fears that he'll die too. And so he just lets years go by, and Tamar never is given a child. So then she dresses up like a prostitute. She goes and sleeps with Judah. She gets pregnant, and then... They find out she's pregnant. They bring her out. Judah says, kill her. And then she says, I have the man's driver's license who slept with me. It's his cord and his signet ring. And he says, you are more righteous than I am. Because you forced me to do what God had called me to do. And I was running from God. Unwilling. And God ransoms that broken type relationship 
and through Judah promises ultimately to bring the Messiah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In Genesis, this is the hope. Looking ahead. And now he says... There's a connection here. May may this offspring be linked up with that promise. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's what the book is about. Trying to show how we move from the period of darkness under curse in the age of the judges, to the age of hope under the new David. And the readers, in light of where we're at right here, would have recognized this is... The first David wasn't it. There must be more. Yes, there is more. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. Now we read Ruth in a bigger picture. Right after Isaiah 53. So at this point, we've already covered Isaiah when we're reading the Bible from start to finish through Jesus' Bible. Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. He was willing to enter and move down in order to ransom those who were broken and far from their God. That's Isaiah 53, and then in Isaiah 54, right on the heels of that, this is what we read. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Don't be confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Think about this through the lens of Naomi, God talking to Naomi. But it's not, he's talking to his ransomed Israel. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. God enters in like Boaz did for Ruth. And ultimately through his suffering servant makes a way where there seemed to be no way. Moving from curse to blessing. And this book turns the tables on all the Old Testament. Darkness, darkness, darkness. And all of a sudden, the whole sense of the Old Testament is going to shift. Every book that we cover, you're going to see this eye looking up. Not just a dim ray of of light that is surrounded by darkness, but rather piercing light, glowing and glorious in the hope of the kingdom, the hope of the Messiah. This book provides the lens then that we open up. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of the mocker or stand in the way of the scorner, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The nations rage. God laughs in heaven. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make Your inheritance, the nations, kiss the sun while you still have hope. Blessed are those who find refuge in Him. Psalm 1 and 2. Ruth sets us up to read the Psalter as messianic music filled with hope 
even in the midst of desperation, to have an eye on the kingdom promises, to not give up on the kingdom promises. What God did for his ancestors, David's ancestors, calling them out of exile, God will do for David's descendants, raising up the new David. I think that's how we're supposed to read the book of Ruth. I'm going to close in prayer, and then you can ask me my question. Ask the question. Father, I thank you for your help. Thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you that you are the Redeemer. What a picture we've seen portrayed in the life of Boaz. You did not leave a widow stranded. Indeed, you did not leave a nation stranded. Indeed, you did not leave a world stranded. But you entered in and bore the curse upon yourself at great cost in order that we might have life and in order that you might be united with your bride. We thank you for such glory in Christ. Amen. Uh, Very unusual. It's potential that, I mean, there we're just moving beyond the text, but no mention of wife suggests that he is single, but most probably a widower. Um, So Pastor John, in his story on Ruth, recognizes that and portrays Boaz as a widower. One who either just had daughters, which is potential in light of the way he cares for all the women under his care. Uh, He has the heart of a father, um, but who had no sons. It seems to me most likely that leveret marriage was only practiced in contexts where the brother or relative was single, so that God didn't call them, for example, to engage in polygamy. I don't, I don't see that that was ever happening. So it seems most likely to me that Boaz was single for whatever reason, but probably he had had a wife that had died. You're free to go. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.